From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Known for works such as The Giver Quartet, Number the Stars, and The Willoughbys, author Lois Lowry joins us for the whole episode this week. We'll talk about her most well-known books, as well as her newest books, including On the Horizon and The Willoughby's Return. It's Wednesday, January 26th, 2021, and this is News Nerds. Writer Lois Lowry has won two John Newberry Awards. She's written more than 40 books, including Number of the Stars, The Giver Quartet, and The Willoughbys, which was adapted into a Netflix movie. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. So when you were growing up, your father had a job in the Army. So you moved around quite a bit. Uh, you lived in Tokyo, Tokyo, Pennsylvania, Hawaii. You were born in Hawaii. Do you think being in so many different cultures and settings inspired you to, you know, inspired your writing and inspired you to write about places like Denmark, where Number of the Stars took place and other, like you just wrote um, On the Horizon, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, that takes place when you were little. Do you think that inspired you? Well, that's a bunch of questions in one, but let me say first, I think... Well, first of all, writers tend to be introverts. Uh, So we're not out there being in the middle of the group. We're observers. And it's very important for a writer to be an observer. Because I was an introvert and kind of shy and also moving around a lot, it meant I was often thrust into new situations. Suddenly I was in a new house, a new city, a new school. And uh, it, it, it made me uh, observe stuff. It made me interested in stuff. I always took my time getting to be friendly with the other kids because I wanted to know what was cool and what wasn't cool. In those days, there were different cool things than there are now. But at any rate, uh, it made me into an observer. And it made me interested in a lot of things and a lot of places. I don't know that it directly led to my writing about, for example, Denmark. But the book you mentioned, On the Horizon, is specifically about uh, my childhood in both Hawaii and Tokyo. As a child, um, what did you read? Because you're, you've said that you do not like to read young adult or children's books anymore but it's not that I not that I don't like to read them it's that I have only a certain amount of time like all of us and I like to read about people that I personally relate to so I like to read about people who are my age adult Uh, it's not that I don't like young adult or children's books obviously I do because I write them Uh, But I just don't have time to read all the stuff that's out there. And there are an awful lot of them, and an awful lot of good ones, I understand. I just haven't gotten around to reading them. So what did you read as a child? When I was a kid, there were wonderful children's books. And my mother had been a teacher before she married, so she was wonderful at reading to small children. Plus which my sister was three years older and she taught me to read when she learned to read. So I was a very early reader. 
And uh, I read all the existing children's books of that time. They were very different from today's books. They tended to try to teach lessons to children, how to be better children. Uh, so they were moralistic in a way, many of them. I didn't notice that. I loved them for the stories. But when I became a little older, there were not any what are now called young adult books. Those didn't exist. So I went from reading kids' books to reading adult books, but I sought out adult books that had young protagonists. And one that I remember specifically, which I read, my mother alerted me to it, when I was nine years old. And it was a book called The Yearling. And it was about a boy my age, whose life was very different from mine, but uh, it had adult stuff in it, tragedy, which you didn't find in children's books in those days. So it was a glimpse into real life, and that was very exhilarating to me. So I went from reading children's books to adult books at about age nine and 10. Lots of your books are based in some part on fact, like Number of the Stars is historical fiction, and even your the totally fictional books have some aspects of uh, a historical setting or some, some non-fictional place, setting, person. What goes into researching those books? Well, a book that, let me start out with Number of the Stars. That was based on history. And so, of course, it required research because I couldn't get the facts wrong. And I started out by doing that in a library in Boston and by talking to a friend who had been a child in Denmark in 1943. And then I went to Denmark, and with my friend's help, she introduced me to people who had been involved in those events in 1943. All of those people now are dead, unfortunately. Uh, but that's what happens as time passes. So it's important to record those bits of history. Uh, I'm trying to think now. That's probably with the exception of On the Horizon, the only historical fiction I've, write, I've written. No, I'm, I'm going to change my mind on that. There's another book you may not be familiar with. It's part of a series called the Dear America series. Do you know that series? Yeah. Each one of those centers on a historic event. And mm -hmm. uh, they offered me a chance to do one of those books. They're all done by different authors. And I used the 1918 flu epidemic. I wrote that book, gosh, probably, I'm guessing, 12 years or so ago. Uh, and now they've republished it with a new cover. And the new cover has a girl wearing a mask, which they did in 1918, uh, because now it seems very timely. So that was based uh, on, on uh, history. And in that book, the girl is orphaned by the flu, as many children were. And so she is sent to live, as many orphaned children were in those days, with a religious sect called the Shakers. It was very popular at that time. There are only three living Shakers left. But at that time, she went to live in a Shaker village and had to live by their rules. And, and they were tough rules. It was a very different kind of life. But in order to do the research for that, I went to that Shaker village where I was allowed to look at the daily diaries that those people kept back in 19, the book is set in 1918. 
and uh, you could turn the page. And so I was able to make the weather be the same that it had been that day uh, in, in real life. Uh, so that's, that's a wonderful uh, asset to a person writing historic fiction, to be able to have actual documents, uh, as I did in some cases with the book set in Denmark. I have a new book, not yet published, that is based on history. And it doesn't even have a definite title yet, but it's set in the first century, which was the Iron Age, in northern Germany. And the people there left, no, they had no written language. They left no uh, diaries, nothing I could refer to. Uh, however, a Roman historian had traveled there, and he wrote about that place and those people. And I, I got a copy of his book and uh, read it in English, of course. Even though I took four years of Latin in high school, I c wouldn't be able to read it in Latin. So there are various ways of making sure that the history is correct in a book. But at the same time, you have to, particularly for a young audience, you have to bring it to life so it becomes interesting to them. Uh, because a kid doesn't want to sit down, yay, I'm going to read a history book. A kid wants to read a story. And of course, history consists of people's stories. That's what I try to do. Why did you decide to write books for kids and young adults? Because lots of the stuff you write about could easily be adapted to be an adult book, or yeah. just because lots of the stuff you write about is really hard-hitting stuff. I thought of myself as a writer for adults. I had majored in writing in college. I went to Brown University. I was doing a lot of writing for magazines. That was nonfiction, but I really wanted to write fiction. It's always been harder to publish fiction than nonfiction. So I was writing a lot of magazine articles. I had a dark room. I was doing my own photography, so I was a photojournalist. But I was also writing short stories sending them to magazines and getting rejection slips because that's what happens to a writer. Um, and then finally a magazine published a story by me and it was not a biographical story. It was a story for adults. Uh, it was a magazine for adults. Magazine still exists. It's called Red Book. Uh, it no longer publishes fiction. Uh, but they published that story and uh, it was a day in my life when I was nine, I believe. And uh, an editor, a book editor, a children's book editor, read the story in the magazine, got in touch with me and said, would you consider writing a book for young people? You sound like somebody who can relate to young people. So I did that. Uh, I wrote the book. They didn't promise to publish it, but I wrote, wrote it with them at the other end, interested in reading what I would write. And I, I chose something from my own life. I wrote about the death of my own sister when we were both young. And they published that book. It was 1977, long before you were born. Um, and it's still in print. It's called A Summer to Die. I've never liked the title. I couldn't think of a title. I wrote the book. I sent the manuscript to them with no title. And... Uh, at some point, they, they called me and they said, you know, you got to put a title on this. And it was sort of a last-minute choice, and I've never loved the title. But at any rate, the book uh, became very popular with young readers, girls mostly. 
uh, because it was about the death of a young girl and the effect on the younger sister. Uh, and I began to get letters from kids. Nowadays, it's email that I get. But in those days, it was letters. And I began to realize for the first time how, how deeply affected a young person is by reading a book that they love. Uh, some kids wrote me, and still do, that a particular book changed their life. I don't know if that's true, but it's true that they felt that it had. And I began to feel that maybe writing for young people was more important than writing for adults. So I still write for adults from time to time, but I really have focused on kids. Uh, and uh, you mentioned introducing me that she's written more than 40 books. I think the new book coming out will be the 50th. So it's been a long time, a lot of books, all of them, I'm trying to think if I'm mistaken, but no, I think it's true. Every book of those 50 is for a young audience. Actually, Summer Today is one of my favorite of your books. And oh, I, I read that one a couple years ago, and I still remember lots of it. It's a, it's a good book. Um, are you comfortable talking about your sister and how the book is uh, based off of of her death because of yeah. cancer. Sure. Um, I, I changed things. When I set out to write the book, You, if you read it a few years ago, you may remember that the opening scene, and I always try in a book to open with, a, uh, with the main character in some kind of situation that will tell the reader a little bit about the main character. And that book opens, if I remember correctly, with the two girls and the younger and the and the older one takes a piece of chalk from her desk and draws a line on the wall and draws a line across the bedroom floor and up the opposite wall and then says to her sister, who's telling the story, um, she says, there now, uh, you be as much of a slob as you want, but keep your junk on your side of the room, this side is mine. And that was an event that I actually remembered when my sister and I had shared a bedroom and I was a slob and she was very neat and she had drawn that chalk line. So it was a way of portraying these two sisters, uh, their differences, uh, but eventually, of course, their deep affection for each other. Uh, my sister was three years older than I and uh, we were, very close growing up. We were each other's best friends. I, I think I already told you that she taught me to read. We were also sometimes each other's worst enemies. Uh, we were uh, great companions in various adventures, and we also were, uh, what would the word be, uh, criminals together in misbehaviors at times. And it wasn't until we were in our 20s that she became ill and died. I made the girls younger in the book because the publisher had asked me to write a book for young people. And young people like to read about people their age or slightly older. Young people would not have picked up that book if the two girls were in their 20s. So that's why I changed things. But I think also perhaps I changed things slightly as a way of distancing myself a little bit from the events. Maybe if I had just told them flat out the way they happened, it would have been a much more difficult and sadder book for me to write. 
I, as I'm talking about this, I'm realizing too that uh, I've lost a child. My, one of my sons died some years ago in an accident, and I've never written about that. But I've probably used the emotions and the things I learned from that set of events uh, in, in other created characters and disguised in various ways. That's what writers do, I think. Right. And in, I mean, you have written about, your son was a pilot, right? Yes, he was an Air Force pilot who was killed in a fighter plane. You have, like, with Number of the Stars, that was a, really based on World War II, so, like, that really related to what he was doing at that time. Well... In a way, but only because uh, it's war and there were military events involved, of course. Uh, but my son, although he flew that fighter plane, flew missions during the first Iraq war back in 1991, uh, he was killed in a peacetime accident. He wasn't killed in, in uh, wartime battle. And also, Number of the Stars, though it deals with World War II events, is really not about war so much. Uh, it's about the integrity of the Danish people who, when they discovered that the Nazis were going to take the entire Jewish population of Denmark and take them to the concentration camps where they would be killed, it's really quite an amazing story. The Christian population rose up and hid their entire Jewish population. It wasn't large, it was 7,000 people, thereabouts. Uh, and then when the Nazis went at the appointed time to round up all the Jews, they couldn't find them. It's such a wonderful adventure story, but it's also a story about courage and integrity, and uh, not so much about warfare. I mean, people rise up with courage in various ways at various times. This happened to be during the Holocaust and during World War II. Right. Yeah, it's all, I've, I haven't read Number of the Stars in a while, but that was another one of my favorite books, and I, it's all coming back to me about how that story went. Um, my favorite book for a while was The Giver, and it still is definitely just a really a great book. Um, you started with the idea of human memory. Tell me how that idea of the plot of the giver started with just that one idea and how it kind of blossomed from that. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people have thought of the giver, spoken of the giver as either science fiction or fantasy or a combination of the two. Uh, and those are two genres that I have never really been attracted to. I'm not a reader of science fiction, although there's good science fiction out there. Uh, but instead, I, I'm, I'm most attracted to exploring human phenomena, human emotions. And uh, this began, uh, The Giver, the idea for The Giver, back 1993, perhaps, when my father was very old. Uh, he lived to be 92, but he was beginning to lose his memory. And I began thinking a lot about memory and how it serves us. I realized on a visit that my father had forgotten my sister. She was his first child. 
And uh, surely the day that she died was the saddest day of his life, and he had forgotten it. And I can remember thinking, what if there were a way we could allow people to forget the things that make them sad or scared? Uh, and uh, I began to think how we would do that and what, what it would mean. And, and, and so I began to create, I always start, with, of course, with a character. And so I created a 12-year-old boy. Actually, he's about to be 12. I think on the first page it says the ceremony of 12 was coming. And, and because I was going to deal with people who had somehow scientifically found a way to manipulate human memory, it was going to have to be in the future. So uh, I would never have sat down and thought, oh, I'm going to write a book about the future. Instead, it just happened that it had to be set in the future. But I made it seem as realistic as possible. And I didn't bother dwelling on how, scientifically, how they had found a way to do that, to control memory and control other things. Everything in the whole society in the book is, is very well controlled. Uh, so that was the beginning of The Giver. I had no idea that that book would become as wildly popular as, as it has. It was published, I think, in 1994 and, uh, or 93, so we could do the math. That's a very long time ago. Uh, and still, every day, I mean, just this week, I've been corresponding with a firefighter in New Jersey who, to whom the giver means everything, he says. Uh, he's bought a first edition of The Giver for me to sign for him. Uh, but there have been other people. There was a Trappist monk in a monastery. There was a Qantas airline pilot in Australia who have written to me about that book. Now, kids have always written to me. You said, you wrote to me when you were in second grade, and that was about a book about second graders. But this book began to attract not just kids, but adults of all sorts. And in many different countries, because it's now in uh, 30 or some languages. During the pandemic, because I could not go out on the road visiting schools and speaking in, in various places, as I often had in the past, I began doing Zooms, but I had to limit them because every teacher in the country wanted you know, some help in dealing with education, and I just couldn't answer all those invitations. So I began doing them only in other countries. And almost invariably, they were about the giver. And I talked to kids in Kathmandu and uh, Brazil and Tehran, Iran. Who knew that kids in Iran would be reading the giver? Several groups in Turkey, uh, Italy, many other places. A lot in Japan, but in Japan it was because of On the Horizon, the book that incorporates my childhood in Tokyo. But at any rate, it's a wonderful feeling talking to those kids. And of course, I could only talk to those kids who understood and spoke English. But they were reading it in their countries, often in different translations, and realizing that all of them have the same interests, the same concerns, no matter what kind of society they live in, what kind of culture. And you know, in Iran, they live under an uh, authoritarian regime. Uh, I've, I've had letters from Russia. They're reading The Giver in Russia. Uh, so it's, that's been an amazing thing that I never could have expected or planned for. I did not 
plan to write any books to follow it, any sequel. And The Giver ends, you may remember, kind of um, ambiguously. So I still get a lot of letters, emails from kids saying, is he alive or is he dead? And I get to tell them, he's not only alive, but there are three more books you can read in which he appears. So over the course of a number of years, I did write three more books. And the fourth one, I'm now realizing, even though I said earlier to you that I had not written about the loss of my son, the fourth book really deals with that uh, in a disguised way. Because the fourth book, the main character is Gabe, the one who's a baby in The Giver. And he's now in a different place, and he's 14 years old. And he asks Jonas, who's now an adult, about his own past. And he said, who was my mother? Didn't she want me? So that's part of the book, is his search for his mother. But the other part of the book, and it's 400 pages long, is the girl, the birth mother, who at age 14 gave birth to him and has now been looking for him for 14 years. So the book is about the loss of a son and, for the boy, the loss of a mother. And, of course, it has a happy ending. Uh your, your books, uh, some of them have been challenged and banned, especially The Giver. Um, how do you react to that when schools or libraries decide to take your books off their shelves? Oh, it's always very saddening. For one thing, I am very opposed to the idea of censorship and book banning. And I don't know if you in your education have yet begun to study the rise of fascism that brought on World War II and Hitler, but one of Hitler's earliest moves was to ban books. And uh, in, and I've forgotten, I think it's in Berlin, possibly Munich, I've been to this spot and I've forgotten which city it is, but uh, there was a ceremony, bands were playing, people were cheering, and they had a big pile of books that they burned. Uh, Ernest Hemingway was one of the authors who was burned that day. At any rate, uh, it's an early stage in a, in a frightening progression uh, of, of government uh, interference in our lives. So I'm very much against censorship and banning. And when I find that The Giver, or in some cases others in my books, have been removed, uh, I, I feel uh, a, a great sadness. Uh, and, and there's, I don't go out and uh, I've, I've been asked to go to schools and speak to school boards and I've, I've stopped doing that because it doesn't do any good. Uh, I've written many letters to newspapers where it's become an issue. Uh, the Giver was among the most challenged books in the United States for some years. It no longer is uh, because there are books now that have been published since The Giver which have uh, other issues that people uh, pounce upon. Uh, there are a number of books now for young people that deal with gay issues. The Giver doesn't. Uh, and th those are important books to have out there because there are kids who need to be able to read those books and not feel so alone. Uh, but The Giver has sort of fallen by the wayside in terms of censorship because people have pounced on, on uh, other issues now. I couldn't... I. I had to stop reading The Giver in school in third grade because uh, the teacher read ahead and found out 
what happened, we had to get our parents' signatures to, to read it. <laughs> Third up. grade is actually a little young for the giver. It wouldn't have done you any harm, but usually it's used in schools now in seventh and eighth grade. Hmm. Okay. Um, so recently your book, Number of the Stars, came up at, a, I think, a, some sort of staff meeting or board meeting in Texas where the really what's happening there, I'm not sure I understand it completely, but schools are, are, are kind of, um, hmm, I'm not sure how to describe it. You want me to try to explain what yes. happened? Uh, it was a particular uh, town in Texas. It was a suburb of Dallas, I believe where the school authorities put out a, out a directive saying that no book could be used in the classroom or be in the school library unless there was a book that presented the opposite point of view. And uh, someone at the meeting of teachers at which this was announced, somebody uh, had a recording device and recorded this. And in the recording, uh, she captured a voice of another teacher who immediately said, I use number of the stars. How can there be another point of view to number of the stars? How can there be an opposing book? Uh, and she's absolutely right, because number of the stars, as I just described, uh, is about the Holocaust, uh, about the amazing uh, way in which a population saved its Jewish population from being exterminated. How can there be another point of view about that? Eventually, because this came out and was so much in the news, in fact, CNN called me, I had to be a talking head one morning talking about it, uh, the, the superintendent or whoever it was who had put out that direction uh, rescinded it. And, and, uh, and so far it's subsided, but that will come up again. And, and one of the things that's happening, as I'm sure you know, uh, is that schools are being uh, asked not to teach about slavery and that slavery was bad. How can there be an opposing point of view to that? Uh, it boggles the mind. So it's something we should be aware of and we should, we should fight against that kind of uh, censorship that's, that's going to uh, destroy the, uh, the, the teaching of history if we allow it to continue. I mentioned when I was introducing you the Netflix movie, The Willoughbys, which was based off of one of your books, The Willoughbys. Um, and you've, we've been talking about some of your more young adult books, but you've also written uh, like Goonie Bird Green, The Willoughbys. Those are more for younger kids. They, um, they did a movie about the book. Um, did you... Or are you happy about how they decided to portray the book? Okay, I've, I've uh, seen four different movies made from four different of my books. And I've become aware and made myself uh, become accustomed to and adjusted to the fact that a movie is never going to be the same as a book. Um, the Giver uh, probably came closest, but even so, what happens is uh, in a book like The Giver, a lot of what happens is inside the consciousness of the boy. You're able to be inside the boy and you know what his thoughts are. And they can't do that in a movie. They have to portray it with action. So they have to put in car chases and stuff that you wish weren't there. 
Uh, as for the Willoughby's, the Willoughby's was uh, a satire. Um, I kind of, I'm very fond of the book. Uh, the movie was completely different from the book. I was quite astonished to see the movie. Uh, for one thing, it's narrated by a cat who belongs to the family. Uh, I guess that's one way of doing it and taking a different point of view. But, but a lot of things are different. So I just kind of don't worry about it. I figure a book is one thing, a movie is something else, and the book is still there. And in fact, after uh, it was after the Willoughby's movie, the publisher asked me, because the movie created a lot of interest in the book, uh, to write a sequel to the book, and the sequel is called The Willoughby's Return. And that was great fun. Uh, I hadn't thought of writing a sequel because at the end of the first book, I don't know if you've read it, but the parents, uh, there are terrible parents in the book. Mm -hmm. There are four children and they have the worst possible parents. And so they plot a way to get rid of their parents and not realizing that the parents are secretly plotting to get rid of the children. Uh, and the end of the book, the children win, of course, and the parents who have gone mountain climbing in Switzerland wearing shorts and sandals and all the wrong equipment, uh, they are frozen on top of an alp. And they're in such a precarious place they can't be removed, and so they're there forever, frozen. And it says, frozen like popsicles, and they have smiles on their faces. And people can put 25 cents into a pair of binoculars and, and look at them up there on the mountaintop. So how can you write a sequel when two of the main characters are dead? And, but I did, and in The Willoughby's Return, it explains that because of global warming, the uh, snow in the Alps has begun to melt and the Willoughby's, the parents, have defrosted. But it's 40 years later, and so they make their way home with great difficulty, only to find that they are younger than their children now. So, it was a fun book. Now I've forgotten what your question was, but it's, it's a book for younger kids, and it doesn't deal with, with uh, important issues the way some of my other books do. It's just silly and fun. So let's talk about one of your most recent books, On the Horizon. Um, I sent you a passage from the book, and if you could read that aloud, that would be great. Oh, thank you. Let me, let me explain it first. Yeah. You, you did tell me which one you wanted me to read. Uh, as you said, I was born in Hawaii. Uh, my father was a career military officer. He was uh, in, in the Army uh, all his adult life. And so I was born in Honolulu. And as an adult, probably 60 years after the picture was taken, uh, I showed a picture of me on the beach with my visiting grandmother. And a friend of mine, I showed a picture to a friend of mine who was a retired naval officer. He'd been commander of a nuclear submarine. And uh, he looked at the picture, and he wasn't that interested in the cute little girl on the beach. He looked at the horizon, and he said, look there. He said, that's the silhouette of the Arizona. And the Arizona was a battleship that was sunk when Pearl Harbor was born. So, uh, excuse me, not when Pearl Harbor was born, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. So I began to be kind of haunted by that image of me playing happily on the beach at the same time that in the background, on the horizon, was a ship with 1,100 very young men on it, and they would all, within a very short period of time, uh, be killed. And so that's what the first third of the book 
book is about is the young man on that ship. But here is the passage you asked me to read. The book is written in poetry because that's the way it came to me in my mind. It says, I was a child who played in the sand, a little shovel in my hand. I pranced and giggled. I was three. The ship sailed past. I didn't see. I wonder now that time's gone by about that day, the sea, the sky, the day I frolicked in the foam when Honolulu was my home. I think back to that sunlit day when I was young, and so were they. If I had noticed, if I'd known, would each of us be less alone? I've traveled many miles since then, round the world, back again. I've learned that there will always be things we miss that we don't see on the horizon, things beyond. And yet there is a lasting bond between us, linking each to each, boys on a ship, child on a beach. Incidentally, when after that book was published, and it includes individual little pieces, poetry about young men who were on that ship. I, I read biographies of many of them and chose a few. And there was a young man, James Myers was his name. Uh, and I mentioned that he had two little boys. He was killed. And the reason I chose this particular young man was because in looking, reading about him, I came across an old newspaper article. Uh, he, he had um, grown up in Missouri on a farm. And he had had two older brothers who had both been killed, one in World War One, and the second at age 14, bringing cows in from the field had been struck by lightning during a thunderstorm. And so there was an interview with his mother, and uh, she said, and I added, I put this into the poem, uh, widowed Mary Myers, who opened the telegram with dread. I had bad luck with all my boys, she said. Uh, and that was what struck me, the, the voice of that woman who now her third son had been killed. But he had also left two little boys. And the reason I mention him in particular is after the book was published, I got an email from one of those little boys who is now a man in his 80s. And he said, I'm Jimmy. Uh, and it struck me, it brought home to me, I guess I would say, uh, how connected we are. I guess I hadn't thought, goodness, that little boy would still be out there. And now he picks up a book and reads about his father and writes to me to say, how, how did you happen to choose my father? And I explained to him about the, his grandmother's words uh, in the newspaper article. But it was just so startling to realize that, that there is this connection still between him, me, his father, all of us. So the book was illustrated by Kenard Pack, um, and he used graphite, I think. And those illustrations are really just simple, but they really add a lot to the book. How, how did you find him, and how did you choose well, generally, him? Generally, it's the publisher who finds the illustrator. In this case, uh, how can I tell this very simply in, in, in short time? Uh, it, it describes at the end of the book when I'm a child in Tokyo, now I'm 12 years old or 11 or 12 or 13, riding my bike around. This is after the war when we're living in Tokyo. And I used to stop by Japanese school playground and watch the kids playing. And a boy would stare back at me and we never spoke to each other. And then a zillion years later, I met him. 
and he's a very well-known, famous, and lovely man, uh, Japanese, but he now is, has an American name and lives in Oregon. His name at the time was Koichi Sei, and uh, his name now is Alan Sei, and he's won the Caldecott Medal for illustration. So he and I have become friends when, he, when we discovered this connection, and he said to me, were you the girl on the green bicycle? Uh, so I tried to, I hoped that he would illustrate the book. But he was under contract for several books, and he just didn't have the time. It would have been years till it could have been published if he had taken it on. So the publisher uh, found another illustrator, and I've never met Kennard Pack or Kennard. I don't even know how to pronounce his name. We were, we were actually on a uh, national public radio. He and I were together for that interview, except that he was speaking from San Francisco and I was speaking from Portland, Maine, so we still have not met. Uh, but uh, I'm sure he's a lovely guy and I'm delighted that he was able to do the book. Lois Lowry, thank you so much for taking time to speak to me today. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. That was writer Lois Lowry. She talked to me about her career as a writer. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream.